Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You wanted to talk about something in the compliance or compliance-related field, but really had no idea how to get started? Take a listen from our sponsor, One Stone Creator. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Today, I have with me John Rush. John is the editor of the blog site, Dipping Through Geometries. He recently had two blog posts, the first entitled United Kingdom Criminal Network that obtained more than $8 billion from fraud, sent $80 million to Al-Qaeda, and Metropolitan Police Commissioner, London money service businesses used to export drug money. So I use this to explore several different areas. John talks about his professional background how he came to found Dipping Through Geometries and why he picked that name. And then we take a deep dive into money laundering, money services businesses, and the role of a compliance practitioner to prevent uh, money laundering going forward. It's a fascinating exploration of one of the newest bloggers around. I know you'll enjoy it. Finally, the FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and you are in for a real treat today, frankly, as am I, because I have with me John Rush. And John is the um, author, editor, and founder of the blog site Dipping Through Geometries, perhaps the latest entry in blogging in uh, uh, compliance. It's much broader than compliance, and I've wanted to have him on the podcast for a long time. So, John, first of all, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So, John, before we get to the uh, two specific blog posts you put up that um, really intrigued me, I wanted to start with uh, a little bit on yourself and how you got to where you are now, and specifically the blog site Dipping Through Geometries. Sure. Very long story made short. Uh, I spent a long time as a federal prosecutor with the Department of Justice in their fraud section. Uh, which, among other things, gave me extensive exposure to all kinds of financial crime uh, enforcement areas, fraud and money laundering uh, and other areas. Uh, even before that, I had actually spent time as the first director of the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Financial Enforcement. Uh, people don't recognize that title these days, but that was actually the, shall we say, the acorn from which FinCEN grew. Uh, so I've had a longstanding interest in AML issues. Uh, after I left the Justice Department in 2015, I spent several years as head of anti-bribery and corruption for Wells Fargo, uh, and I'm now doing a combination of teaching uh, at Georgetown Law Center, including on AML issues, uh, and also doing uh, consulting and other teaching and lecturing on the side. So uh, since the blog uh, was founded, I want to say in... Um either Q2 or perhaps Q3 of 2018, I have wanted to ask you the following question. Where did the name Dipping Through Geometries come from? Okay. Uh, the title, uh, and if people go to the, the blog itself, it's Dipping Through Geometries, all one word, dot blog. Uh, there's a fuller explanation. 
but basically it comes from a Robert Penn Warren poem, uh, which talks about a bird that is obviously dipping along through air currents and up and down valleys. And it talks about dipping through geometries at one point, uh, just a very felicitous phrase uh, as a matter of poetry. But I also thought about it in light of my experience, and I thought, that's actually not a bad metaphor for what companies have to do on a continuing basis. I mean, after all, if you think of uh, a bird like a hawk or an eagle, it's soaring, but you, you, know, you don't just sit at a 30,000-foot level soaring all day uh, in order to feed yourself, in order to continue your life. You have to constantly calculate where to dive, where to turn, where to move, knowing that air currents can, uh, can differ over time. The speed of what you're moving uh, can either be safe or very unsafe. And so like a bird that has constantly to, to calculate how close to this cliff do I come, how far can I go over this mountaintop or this ridge, companies are constantly in this process of calibrating how close, how risky, how safe can I be and still do what I need to do in order to survive and thrive. So that's the basis. So it's a little bit different than the way I played it out in my head, but perhaps not too far, because what it did for me, John, was immediately take me back to the 10th grade, where uh, I had to take my one year of geometry. Uh, but it, uh, I was thinking of the forms of geometry. And my experience in the corporate world was the, um, I called it a five-game chess, uh, five-level chess match every time you did any corporate work because you had to work on at least a five levels of uh, laws if you were doing international work. You had state law, you had national law, you had the law of the country where the contract was signed, you had the law of probably the uh, jurisdiction where the dispute resolution would be held. And then finally, you had internal corporate law. So I had envisioned the geometries of your title as the forms that a compliance officer or indeed a general counsel or, or anyone in that those disciplines in a corporation have. So um, I was fascinated by the title. I would say it has given many in the compliance field uh, endless uh, speculation. So thank you for clarifying that. Not at all. So uh, what, what uh, really struck me on your work, which I would have to say is just uniformly great, uh, was two blog posts um, from uh, earlier uh, this month. The first one was entitled United Kingdom Criminal Network that Obtained More Than $8 Billion from Fraud, or $8 billion, pounds, I should say, from Fraud, Sent $80 million pounds to Al-Qaeda. And the second was entitled Metropolitan Police Commissioner London money service business used to export drug money. And it really drove home for me the uh, difficulties in uh, overseeing and indeed policing uh, money laundering. But it also spoke to me about the uh, several issues that the compliance practitioner in the anti-corruption compliance space wanted or needs to consider. So I was wondering if you might just describe um, what uh, – led you to write uh, those blogs, and then, of course, your obvious interest in the money laundering area. Sure. So part of what I've tried to do with my blogs, since there are, for example, many law firms and leading compliance firms that do their own blogs that will track typically the major enforcement activities, you know, you know yourself, like the big splashy announcements about a major new indictment or trial or guilty plea in the FCPA or AML space for that matter. 
uh, a lot of what I try to do is look for things that don't necessarily make the typical compliance council headlines, the things in other words, that might make more of a difference in-house to CCOs uh, on cybercrime and cyber fraud issues to CISOs as well. Uh, and so part of what I, I also look for, thinking about the way I often thought when I was in-house at Wells, uh, you often want to figure out, are there pieces of information, new developments that are not part of those splashy headlines, but could make a difference in how I think about my risk discipline, think about how I have to refine or revise my risk assessments, either at a very high level or maybe more granular levels. Uh, and so that was what, as it happened in fairly close succession, these two reports out of the Times in London uh, identified a couple of fairly significant issues that, that touch on what you might think of in some respects as linkages across several of the key areas of financial crimes, fraud, money laundering, terrorist financing, and so on. John, let me pick up on a phrase you used there that I've not heard uh, utilized before, and you called it the risk discipline. Uh, is that a discipline that would cut across multiple risks? Uh, for instance, in a corporation, we've talked about money laundering, we've talked about anti-corruption, but perhaps export controls, perhaps about just general business risk. Sure. I think part of the way I thought about it, uh, frankly, in a way that I hadn't in all the years I spent as a prosecutor at the Justice Department, being a compliance officer in any particular space, in some respects, involves thinking about what you're doing, not just as a field of law or field of regulation, uh, but a set of attitudes and organizing principles that can help you as a compliance officer better think about the myriad of issues uh, that you know that your institution is going to be held accountable for uh, if you fail in any one of those significant areas of financial crimes risk. Uh, and certainly my experience in-house was one where I felt, even though my space was specifically anti-bribery and corruption is a day-to-day matter, there was good coordination across the financial crimes risk areas. So everybody knew in their space what had to be done, but there's also good cross-coordination across those financial crimes spaces. And in some respects, that's maybe a larger element of what I mean when I refer to a risk discipline. That is, you have to be thinking constantly how do I make connections, even from my primary area, to other areas of risk, especially financial crimes risk, where I'm not the primary expert, but I want to make sure that I'm talking to the people who are, and that they in turn know they should be coming to me if I've got expertise in another area that's not theirs. So in a way, that's kind of what I think of beyond the, the simple uh, traditional phrases like you know risk assessments or uh, you know, risk profiles. And those are by now kind of well understood. But I think there's a larger, shall we say, culture of professionalism when you think of what you're doing as a discipline, not merely a job or even a responsibility. So now if I could turn uh, directly to uh, the articles and uh, kind of the specifics around what uh, was termed the money service businesses or MSBs uh, that were both in London and across, indeed, across the United Kingdom. Um, what was uh, your estimation on why they were so problematic and difficult for the authorities in the United Kingdom to effectively regulate? 
I think the biggest single issue that that I had seen identified in the Times coverage and that you know I, I can see independently, especially given uh, the public information that the London Metropolitan Police uh, have provided, uh, it is the sheer number of MSBs that they have to cope with, you know, law enforcement and uh, and uh, investigators across the UK. As a point of comparison, FinCEN in the United States, uh, on its website, which you can see today, shows that as of the end of last month, FinCEN had 27,000-plus registered MSBs. So that's 27,000 registered across the entire United States. The London Metropolitan Police said they have 45,000 in the United Kingdom. It's that sheer volume and proliferation of MSBs. Uh, of course, there are UK regulations that require registration with the authorities, but I think that has proven to be an increasingly problematic challenge for law enforcement because of the diversity and the fact that a lot of them have been getting away with not being registered and still continuing to be money service businesses that can help to move, in, the, in this particular case, uh, money that's strongly associated with drug trafficking. So, John, um, I tend to read articles and listen to uh, compliance commentary through the eyes and ears of a, a former anti-corruption compliance uh, practitioner. And although I do have a try to have a broader view now, that's uh, what I default back to. And it really seemed to me one of the key themes of both your articles and even the underlying articles you based your blog posts on was that money laundering can occur in a wide variety of businesses and industries. Would that be a fair assessment? I think it is a fair assessment, Tom, on two levels. I mean, first of all, as you know, even in the United States, under FinCEN regulatory scheme, there's a very wide range of non-bank as well as bank-type financial institutions. Uh, you have, under the BSA uh, statute and regulations, uh, things as diversified as travel agencies, money transmitters, uh, you know, real estate closers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I mean, that's an enormous challenge for, for anybody uh, in any jurisdiction to have to cope with. Uh, but you also add on this additional layer the problem of trade-based money laundering on international level. And for law enforcement and regulators across the world, that makes things even more challenging because you're not going to be looking at some companies as cash-in, cash-out kind of through points uh, for criminal proceeds. But you have to link them uh, causally and, and relationally to those traditional areas of banking and financial institutions if you're going to understand the complete flow of receipt of, of, uh, of proceeds, layering, and then ultimately disposition somewhere else. Uh, so it is, in fact, a greater challenge for, for compliance officers to try to be able to put together both those two level uh, of, of money laundering related activities, both traditional financial institutions and then non-financial institution entities that are involved in the laundering process. So these articles also talk about uh, really specifically the link between money laundering and terrorism. That's certainly been a part of the United States regulatory scheme, most particularly since 9-11. But I was wondering if you might be able to give a few words uh, or, a few, or a few of your thoughts, rather, on how direct that link is and how uh, governments are responding to that. Sure. 
Well, I'll say with regard to the uh, the specific article that linked this individual uh, but very long-running uh, criminal network in the United Kingdom was that the group uh, had, shall we say, <laughs> diverse product lines, that is, multiple types of criminal activity uh, in which the, the network engaged over time in order to get uh, a maximum of, uh, of proceeds from, uh, from a, a variety of sources. Uh, you know, in the simplest terms, uh, as the Times article described it, for example, uh, there were many different types of, of fraud that proved to be very lucrative for the criminal network over time. Uh, they did what's called uh, VAT fraud, like value-added tax fraud or carousel fraud, uh, where it involved the fraudsters controlling certain companies in the UK uh, and then doing different things to, to engage in uh, further sales, supposedly, of uh, uh, additional VAT that's attached that allowed them to, to generate uh, additional revenues and, in effect, allowed them to sell VAT-free goods to, to various companies in the UK. Uh, they engaged in identity fraud. They engaged in uh, other kinds of benefit fraud against the UK uh, uh, government agencies and processes. Uh, they, uh, they even, at some point, uh, were engaging in uh, counterfeiting of goods, counterfeiting of clothing uh, could then be sold. So the group was very diversified, in a sense, had a very stable base because it had multiple sources of illicit revenue, but they also had connections, for example, through an accountant who had lived in the UK and for a considerable period of time was actually the conduit uh, to send funds from the criminal network across to al-Qaeda uh, representatives. And according to the Times, over a considerable period of time, uh, the group basically gave 1% of its revenues, but that 1% added up to some 80 million pounds long-term going to terrorist causes. Uh, that network also had other connections to, to individuals connected with what's called the 7-7 terrorist bombings, that is the London bombings uh, that occurred some years back. Uh, so this is, in other words, a particularly strong linkage between a well-established, long-running criminal network doing traditional types of fraud uh, and so on, and linking that as a significant revenue generator for Al-Qaeda. So if I could turn the focus a little bit to the compliance professional, and what do you see the role of the compliance professional in um, this issue? I think there are probably four main areas on which I would focus in, in saying what the role of the compliance officer is. First of all, when it comes to AML issues, I think reports like the two reports that I highlighted in my posts, uh, they are, if anything, just what should be confirmation of what uh, AML compliance teams should already know, that they can't expect to be looking for the same kind of criminal activity day over day and assume that's the only kind of activity. In other words, there is information out there, even in the public sphere, that can help financial institutions, compliance teams, better understand where terrorist financing can be a potential source of risk for even day-to-day -day activity of financial institutions. That is to say, it's not just about drug cartels who are having people come into a retail bank with uh, duffel bags uh, filled with cash. 
But both the United States and the United Kingdom have had some good, solid terrorist financing risk assessments. Uh, and honestly, I think, at least in the United States, the Treasury assessment, which came out just last December, didn't get very much reporting. But it's actually, I think, a rich source of guidance for financial institutions in figuring out how do we kind of calibrate where our, our overall risk assessment should be? What should we be looking for with certain kinds of businesses? A second thing that I think, as a result, that financial institutions compliance teams need to do uh, is to make sure, and maybe this goes back to my point about a risk discipline, you have to be disciplined in saying the rules are the same for everybody. As you know, from time to time, financial institutions have gotten into hot water with regulators when they start bending the rules for a favored customer or look the other way because there's a supposedly long-established relationship. You have to be consistent uh, with whatever you have as part of your larger uh, risk profile for your, your institution uh, to make sure that all of your risk assessment uh, processes are, are constantly updating that they are factoring in not just customer-specific data, but other kinds of strategic data, like these Treasury uh, terrorist financing risk assessments I've talked about, and other information that can better help them to figure out how do we keep kind of rejiggering and calibrating our customer identification program, our customer due diligence, ongoing monitoring of customer activity. Um, I think a third thing that is important for institutions especially if some people might think, well, I don't know how to track terrorists. How am I supposed to figure out whether Al-Qaeda is coming through our institution? What you do have to do is make sure you look for anomalous patterns of activity, uh, especially if, and this might be a salient point for UK financial institutions, if you have MSBs who are banking with your uh, financial institution. So the same principle can apply to U.S. Uh, institutions as well. If you've got non-bank financial institutions, especially in the money service business area, you want to make sure that your your algorithms, your data analytics are calibrated to identify anomalous patterns of activity uh, and then have a strong decisional process to escalate as necessary. And finally, if you've got any concerns at all, financial institutions have to be prepared with whatever information they have at the time to file SARS as early as is sensible, given what they know about these situations. Uh, there's no discount that's, uh, that's given for filing volumes of SARS, but I think law enforcement here in the United Kingdom and elsewhere are always going to appreciate it more if an institution has said, we're not here to be a grand jury and come up with probable cause to determine somebody committed a crime. The label says suspicious activity reports, and if we've got a logical basis, a rational basis to think this is suspicious, file those reports as early as possible. And unfortunately, as I'm sure you've seen, Tom, some institutions have gotten in hot water with regulators because they waited way too long or even failed to file SARS, though they had information that might have suggested they needed, by any objective standard, to file a SAR at some point on particular patterns of suspicious activity. Well, John, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time. Uh, this has just been a fascinating exploration of uh, anti-money laundering, or money laundering, I should say, the paths to money laundering, and the role of the compliance professional. Um, we're going to link to both these articles in the show notes. Once again, John's uh, 
website, or at least where he blogs, is called Dipping Through Geometries. I wanted to uh, thank you again, and frankly, look forward to continuing the conversation. That would be great, Tom. I always appreciate your work, and I look forward to staying in touch with you in the future. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating exploration of money laundering, money service businesses, and dipping through geometries with John Rush. I certainly enjoyed it, and I finally learned why he named his blog post that title. I hope you will join me again next week when I have another episode of this podcast, the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Once again, thanks again for joining me. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.